Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Barrell, and I'm here with my co-host, Ken Jacobson. Hey, Mike. Today, we speak with Jeff Orlowski, the director of the innovative documentary, The Social Dilemma. In this film, Jeff argues that the business model at the heart of social media platforms has major negative consequences for society. To make his case, he uses traditional documentary techniques, as well as some that we more readily identify as belonging to narrative film. Yeah, I was really struck in the interview. He told us that he wrote a 40-page script with his co-writer. And I just can't imagine in the middle of making a documentary as if that isn't enough work. Hey, let's, let's write a 40-page script. Really incredible. Prior to The Social Dilemma, Jeff is best known for his two chasing films, Chasing Ice from 2012, which was his big breakout project. He premiered at Sundance, won the Emmy for Outstanding Nature Programming, and really became one of the best known and impactful films about climate change. He followed that up in 2017 with Chasing Coral, a film about the devastating consequences of climate change for coral reefs, which also premiered at Sundance and won the U.S. Documentary Audience Award there. Jeff uh, did not make Chasing Amy, I don't believe. That was not his film. The Social Dilemma, which is Jeff's latest film, premiered at Sundance yet again, this time in 2020, it really marks a departure for him in some ways, although not in others, as I think will be made clear in the course of our conversation. The film recently earned a whopping seven Emmy nominations in the documentary nonfiction categories, including Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special, Outstanding Writing, which we do get into in the pod, and Outstanding Directing. It was released globally and is available now on Netflix as a Netflix original documentary. He's extremely well-versed in the techniques used by social media to hold our attention and to deliver that attention to advertiser. And he's extremely eloquent in explaining how they do so. In my day job working in tech startups, I've had the pleasure of meeting many of these knowledgeable and well-spoken young people. And I have to say more than a few came from Stanford. It was interesting to hear that Jeff himself, who did go to Stanford, considered maybe going down the path of social media entrepreneur or something in tech, but he ended up going the route of photography and documentary film. I was really impressed with how Jeff has taken to heart his own discoveries about the impact of social media and has pretty much eliminated all the apps on his phone and doesn't use social media anymore and has turned off basically all notifications. And I started to think about it more and I realized, why am I getting all these notifications from news publications? And I just went and I unsubscribed pretty much all of them. And I've also started not taking my phone with me everywhere because why shouldn't I just go on a walk and experience the walk rather than waiting for that phone to buzz in my pocket? I have to keep my phone in my pocket when I go on a walk because my new pedometer is uh, tracking my steps. We're not sponsored by Noom, although we welcome a call from them. So thanks, Jeff. We'll see how long it lasts. But for now, there's a new me. One thing that had not yet happened when we interviewed Jeff is the Chinese government had not come down with their three hours of gaming time per child per week. So we aren't able to ask Jeff about that. But I can tell you that since that's happened, I've had numerous discussions with parents about the possibility of moving to China. Coming up next is our conversation with Jeff Orlowski. We go deep on both the argument he is making as well as his own techniques of persuasion. Jeff, I think we warned you. We like to ask this big question. Why do you make documentary films? 
I didn't set out to be a documentary filmmaker. When I was in college, I had just started taking film workshops and just into film. And then it was after screening some of the films that I made with my friends and peers that I just loved the experience of being at a festival, at a screening in a theater and seeing the response to a movie that we made. It's absolutely remarkable, just life-changing energy and excitement. But after I had the opportunity to make Chasing Ice, that's really where I fell in love with the medium. Nonfiction film, documentary film, you have the ability to go and explore a subject. You get to dive deep into it. You get to spend years of your life learning and examining and investigating a particular issue and theme. And then you get to make something using all of these different art forms to be able to share what you learned. I'm a musician, I play the piano, and I'm a photographer. So between photography and music, film lets you play in those mediums. It lets you play with the writing and the language. It lets you play with um, timing and approach and emotion and sounds. I just have completely fallen in love with the medium. I didn't know about the musicianship, but I can see that now. I'm blown away by how many people on our team are musicians. Our editor, obviously our composers, but many filmmakers, I think, are musicians. There's something about the rhythm and timing that you need in an edit that really comes together and music goes directly hand in hand with that. Jeff, your first two feature docs, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, both focused on climate-related crises and those who are trying to both document and create visual evidence of those crises. The social dilemma points to another type of major worldwide crisis and is also a call to action, but it's quite different too in that social media, AI, and tech itself are much more abstract and and less observable phenomena. I think with Chasing Ice and with Chasing Coral, our whole team spent so much time thinking about systems level problems. Here is a problem where, oh, humanity built this technology that could take fossil fuels from out of the ground and use it for energy. And, oh, wait a second, there are huge consequences that come out of that that are shifting everything. Spending years and years thinking about how one seemingly small change can impact the entire ecosystem on planet Earth. When we started thinking about this project, it was from the very similar lens. A handful of people created technology that has now been exported out to billions of people on the planet. And invisibly, that technology is changing the way we think and see and understand the world. It is just as big of a systems level challenge as climate change, if not bigger. This was one of the arguments that some of our subjects made that actually convinced us to get involved in the film in that people were saying, we're never gonna be able to solve climate change if we have technology that by design polarizes and provides misinformation and confuses the public and makes it impossible for us to act on any of our problems like climate change. We see that in just how politicized pretty much everything has become. The idea that a mask has become polarized and politicized is mind boggling. And yet when you look at it from the lens of technology that is looking to filter everybody that engages with it for what works for them, and to constantly push towards the most engaging, the most outrageous, the content that is really irresistible, it pushes us, all of us into these separate categories of thought. That's how I see the technology now, that these personalized algorithms that are driven by this advertising business model are as unethical with the same level of consequences that fossil fuels have. You went to Stanford as an undergrad. Obviously there are strong connections and some of them are in the film between Stanford and tech and social media entrepreneurialism. What was your relationship to Silicon Valley and social media? When Facebook 
first came out, it was my sophomore year. I remember using it very proactively, loved using it, was on it all the time. We had a huge friend network of people that were trying to get jobs at Facebook, Twitter, Google. I helped a friend get a job at Facebook. Google hosted events for us. They had Stanford students and Cal Berkeley students come and compete in this like quasi Olympics. I loved those experiences going with the team and and competing against our rival school. When I was in college, I had some friends that I was working with on getting into tech. I, I was curious to go down that path and worked with some friends to build uh, some startups who were developing them, trying to build a new way to distribute news. Some of those friends actually went on to create huge companies that they sold to other huge companies. They've done extremely well for themselves, staying in tech and, and working in that field. It was about that same time that I ended up following my photography and cinematography passions and went out to Iceland and Greenland and started making what would then become Chasing Ice. That project was my fork in the road that literally took me away from the Bay Area, took me to Boulder, Colorado, where that subject was based, took me to practically every continent on the planet. And that's where I, I made my own personal departure away from tech until it came back full circle years later. Prior to embarking on this film, had you ever had a moment where you were questioning your own relationship to social media or its role in society. There was like a tiny seed planted earlier on in 2011 or 2012 when Eli Pariser did a TED talk called something like Beware the Online Filter Bubbles. I remembered seeing that and seeing how people can be fed different information online. He was using Google search examples, something like if somebody in New York and somebody in Texas searched for Egypt, you would get different results vastly different. And it was sort of like, oh, that's fascinating. It's interesting, but I couldn't really see what the implications would be. I remember talking about it with my producer, Larissa, but it was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. So many years go by in 2017, when we started working on this project, in those years leading up to the start of this film, I, I don't think there was a single moment where I really questioned that. I, I don't think I ever wondered what were the negative implications of this technology. The frame for me was just the positive side. It's like Arab Spring and, oh, civilians can speak out. I only saw the silver lining, as was eagerly showcased by the industry and by my friends in the industry. The start of this project was really the first time where I heard anybody say there's a huge problem with what Silicon Valley has built. And I think because it was so shocking to me, because I feel like I'm generally on top of news and global events, and if something is very new to me, I know that it's going to be new to other people as well. And my hope then is that, can we capture that story and share that with others? The main character in the documentary section of the film clearly is Tristan and his Center for Humane Technology. How did you guys hook up on this film? I knew Tristan from Stanford. We had met in passing through some mutual friends. We actually both worked as Apple campus reps at different times. I loved Apple computers and we were there on campus helping to sell Apple computers to students. Very ironically, it was a post that he made on Facebook in 2017. For the first time, I saw him speaking publicly against the company that he used to work for, Google. For the first time, I'm hearing somebody from inside the industry saying, we're using manipulative design techniques to get people to spend more time online. That was the thing that was really particularly shocking for me. I was in San Francisco soon afterwards, and I, I saw him speaking to other people around how serious this was as an issue. I, I immediately was like, I don't know how we turn this into a movie just yet, but there's something here that I have to explore and have to understand because we're talking about really high stakes and something that I knew nothing about. I went to one of our mutual friends, Jeff Seibert, who's also in the film, and I asked Jeff, what's up with this? Is there any truth to this? And Jeff was the former head of product at Twitter. His response was, I was skeptical when I first heard about it. 
And then he thought about it more and started spending more time reflecting on it. And he realized that Tristan was really onto something. To have observed a friend of mine, whom I, I really highly respect, go through his own change of heart from his former stance to engaging with this conversation and coming out with a different perspective on the other side, that was a, a huge affirmation for me that there was something really worth exploring here. You have these title cards that come up. The first one, I think, is a Sophocles quote, nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse. There are many times in this project when we were calling it variations on the, the idea of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, that we built something, the tech industry built something that became so huge. It was too good to be true. We now realize it is too good to be true and that there are consequences. We see the challenges of late stage capitalism and exploitative capitalism that in some ways have just gotten so good at turning whatever they're trying to turn into money that there are these real impacts on humanity. I think that's something that we didn't fully realize or appreciate when we started working on this project. When we first started working on it, I met with Tristan and some other friends from college and, and people who were starting to talk about this issue more publicly. It was very curious to me because I had never heard a critique of social media like this. I had so many friends from college who worked at those companies that still work at those companies. I loved it. I used it all the time. I thought it was a platform for my activism. I thought it was a platform to get environmental issues and themes out into the world. I don't feel that way anymore, by the way. But in that process of learning and exploring, my entire perception of what this technology was doing was flipped. And I went from thinking that I was the active agent using this technology for my objectives to seeing that I'm really the puppet being used in this system where I'm being mined and extracted from for this business model that's making the tech executives as rich as they are. This is technology that was never designed for humanity. It wasn't designed to actually bring us closer together. It's not real connection that comes through these platforms. The technology from everything that we've learned and seen in the process of making this film, this technology was built and designed around a very effective business model of turning our digital lives into great profits for a handful of companies. And the reality is there are consequences that come from that. So that for me was, I, th I think, one of the big takeaways in recognizing this is a huge issue, right? This is one of the biggest issues that we are going to deal with in this generation. I, I think we'll look back at pre and post social media in the same way that we look at pre and post fossil fuels. It, it is that scale and that level of impact on humanity. This documentary is partly kind of traditional talking heads painting a pretty dire picture of where we are with social media, but it also has another piece, this sort of quote unquote, typical upper middle class-ish suburban family. They get deep into the social media. And then you have this algorithm, three parts, the advertising engagement and growth algorithm played by Vincent Carthizer, just tremendous casting, arguably the Weasleyest of the Mad Men, right? right. To see him come and be also the algorithm pulling the levers right. totally makes sense and resonates for anyone who knows that show. How did you arrive at this? Why did you want yeah. to do this? When we first started, we wanted to do something unique, but we weren't quite sure what it would be. I've always taken inspiration from Adam McKay's The Big Short a great film that took a concept around housing crisis and the collapse and then applied to it these documentary interstitials to help explain to the audience the things that you really needed to know that were hard for the, the narrative film to explain. Early on, one of the concepts was what's the documentary version of the big short? What's the converse of that? How can we have a doc 
that was completely based in truth, hearing first-person testimony from all these experts. And at the same time, could we do little skits? Could we do interstitials? Could we do something that breaks the wall and makes it somewhat entertaining and engaging? I probably sat on that for months, if not a year, just the idea of could we pull off something like that? At the same time, our subjects were trying to explain to us how algorithms worked and what exactly an algorithm is and how do they operate and the machine learning part of the algorithm that's constantly learning and adapting on its own. And why is it making the decisions that it's making? Our subjects kept using different analogies to try to explain it to us. There was one day we were just sort of joking. So imagine Will Ferrell at a control panel and he's there picking what you see. And based on what you see, he's going to deliver the next thing. We had some morbid jokes. Oh, there was some beheading video and oh, he loves the beheading video. So let's show more beheading videos. There's no morality in what the algorithm is choosing to show you. It's just choosing to show you whatever works on you. That was one of the sparks that really helped us envision this concept. I wanted the algorithm to come to life and we wanted people to see what was hiding on the other side of the screen. And in our conversations with our editor and our writer and our team, we realized there's a way to tie it all together and that the public is going to respond and engage with the family story, the human story. I was sitting on a plane one day and I remember the light bulb going off, envisioning the entire thing coming together where we can go in and out of this narrative world and that we could have not varied interstitials, but a singular story and a singular through line of a person and that person's algorithm going back and forth as we're learning from our subjects what we need to know about how this technology works. One of the challenges there also was trying to map that out where we're showing the things happening within the AI world and within the human world in pace with what we're learning from our subject experts, trying to keep them going hand in hand. You're able to follow a story and learn from the subjects at the same time. It's not just that you introduce this conceit, but you time it so that you reveal parts of it as we learn more and more from the, the experts. And, and yeah. that had to be, uh, how much of that, that was, was the hardest thing? <laughs> What's the process of something that complex? Um, it, it was incredibly difficult. And I think I'm still recovering from that creative endeavor. We have a writer on the team, Vicky, and Vicky and I worked very closely together on mapping out the narrative story. And our editor Davis and Vicky and I, the three of us worked very closely on the documentary story. The order of operations here, we had already been shooting for quite a long time, getting deeper and deeper into our edit. We had an hour plus, hour and a half of all the scenes that we wanted to convey. We had the nonfiction film basically put together in the structure and outline that we liked. Vicky and I were then working on the screenplay and wrote an independent 40 page screenplay of basically this through line. And there were sections where we were working into the screenplay, like this is what we see in the doc world. And then we transition into this narrative. We went back and forth in the screenplay to have placeholders for where we knew some of the big documentary scenes would be. That got us so far, but actually it was a little tough to move past that to really merge the two together. We got a storyboard artist located here in Denver and brought this artist on to then sketch out every scene in the narrative. We storyboarded the entire 40 page script. We then took those storyboards and one of our assistant editors recorded voiceover describing the scene and what the scene was going to accomplish. We cut that storyboarded animation and that voiceover into the documentary. Now we could sit back and watch, here's three minutes of doc, and then here's the scene and the opening credit scene and what it's going to look like. And then we go back to the doc and then we see this other scene. We had effectively the entire template of the film put together with what I knew 
we could use in the final cut around those narrative scenes. Uh, one of the big realizations was there was too much in the narrative. I really wanted the film to be grounded in truth. I wanted an audience member to watch it and know I'm hearing from these insiders and these experts who are telling me what's going on, to be able to trust that part. The narrative scenes were there to help keep it moving and to keep you engaged and to visualize and understand these concepts in a different way. But I didn't want to go too far that you forgot that this was a nonfiction film. So we found that balance in the edit with the storyboards. We then adapted the screenplay and then we set out to shoot all the narrative portions. We were able to give Vinny and our, our whole cast a cut of the film to watch before we ever shot anything. And so all the actors could get a sense of, oh, I have a sense of where my story is going and what that arc's going to be. And what do I have to do here early in the film and how it's going to play later in the film? It was another way to sort of realize the screenplay for the talent. My understanding from what they said was that it was very helpful and it was a very new process for them. So then we basically were able to shoot all of that pretty quickly. It still was not plug and play by any means. So much gratitude for the whole creative team just pulling this together on an insane timeline. Everybody moved mountains to make it happen. And we were all super proud of the result. Did you seek out technical assistance for exactly how the different AI characters would function and, and what their jobs would be? We landed on those three from what we learned from mostly the engineers and some of the executives who were advising us throughout that whole process. This very much is one of the main objectives. How do we grow the network? How do we get people to engage and stay on? And then how do we optimize for money? And this is one of the wicked things. Like I, I've stopped using all social media in, in the process of making this film, but let's say all three of us were on Twitter. The algorithm can optimize how frequently to show you an ad to keep you engaged. That's going to be different for each and every one of us. If I'm clicking on a whole bunch of ads and going through it, it might show me more and more ads. If I stop scrolling when I see an ad, it's going to phase back out and not show me that ad. And there's an algorithm that's optimizing what's the frequency with which I should show you the ad. And then there's another algorithm that's basically running a live auction to figure out what should I fill the content with? Who's going to spend the most money to put an ad in front of me or Ken or Michael or whomever? And that's just how the advertising algorithm works. The growth algorithm is trying to figure out how can I get you to have more connections and more followers to be connected to more things? In the old days, if somebody sent me a friend request, oh, we have five mutual friends. How do you know them? Oh my God, they're such a great friend. I love them. I actually knew all of our mutual friends. Now somebody sends a friend request, you have a hundred something mutual friends and I don't know 90 of them. That is an algorithm that has co-opted the way we relate with each other. It's no longer anything about friendship. It's not about real relationships. It's just about, can I get you to grow the network? This entire nodal network, I sort of picture it as this like infinite cloud in this black void of everybody has their own little dot that represents their node. And the more lines that connect the whole thing, right? If, if I had a hundred friends in the past and I have a thousand friends now, everything that I post, there's a 10x chance that 10x more people are going to see it. And 10x more advertisements are going to be viewed in that process. The goal of this business model is volume. It's to just get as much shit to pass through the pipes as possible because the more that goes through the pipes, the more ads that get seen along with it. And, and that's the entire business model. That is the entire reason for existence at these companies, the way they've designed themselves. The resurrection mode scene. I think it's really a great spot where that interesting conceit of the humanized AI and the interpenetration of the social media into our lives really accelerates. It goes from background noise to right up front and center. And it does so, I think, mm -hmm. 
by taking a traditional stock scene, you would see like in a sitcom of the frustrated teenager in love and remaking it in a very powerful way. The teenage boy, Ben, has made a deal with his mother, basically, that he'll stay off social media for a week and in return, she'll buy him a new phone. The AI gets frustrated. Where's Ben? I haven't seen Ben. And the AI decides it has to take a strong action to bring Ben back. This is literally how they do it. At Facebook, they call it a resurrection. If you are using the platform and you stop using it, they want to resurrect you, literally trying to bring you back from the dead. In the process of making the film, I stopped using Facebook and started to feel the actual resurrection algorithm being applied to me. I was a very heavy user of Facebook. And then as I'm weaning myself off, I'm getting more and more texts from Facebook. I could see it trying different things. It threw everything at me. Here's a photo of my sister and some family thing. No, that didn't work. Here's a work colleague. Here's a film related thing. Here's a, and it was really just trying to test all these different things on me. Facebook was sending friend requests of an ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend. And once again, this is not like an engineer is sitting there saying, let's escalate from this to this to the ex-girlfriend. That's what the AI is just figuring out on its own. Oh, Jeff really likes looking at a photo of that particular person for some reason. Oh, this person that I spend a lot of time with is spending a lot of time with this other person. The algorithms knew all of that. When that message came in, I, I, I could see past the veneer at that point. Like I knew what was going on and could understand the way this technology was designed to manipulate me in that moment. And so when I started to understand how the AI was actually working and then could feel it so palpably, that was one of the concepts that we wanted to bring to light in that scene. For me, it's become a new muscle and a new practice to avoid that. So I don't engage with any of that. I don't have any notifications that could suck me in to an endless scroll. I've set my life up such that I had no opportunity to fall into that rabbit hole. And that, by the way, has given me so much more time and freedom. I get to apply my creative energy to the things that I want to apply it to. That was actually a really palpable tension when making the film where I felt my pull to social media and had to act, shut that down just so I can finish this movie. And so they don't lead with the cute girl in class that isn't attracting him. And they say, we can't lead with political stuff that foreshadows later what's going to happen. But they identified his ex-girlfriend, the model could tell that been following her. And then it set, points out that the ex-girlfriend has a new boyfriend. So three days into his social media fast, he sees this. And now the music gets a little creepier and we start seeing the video on the refrigerator. They're on the staircase and I put a spell on you kicks in. That song was just such an appropriately perfect song. There's this magic that's being played on us through these technologies and we are put under a spell and we don't realize what we're doing or why or how. I put a spell on you. Traditionally, that would be the lover who put the spell, but here's the technology that's putting the spell. And I, I appreciate you pointing out that the visuals start surrounding him in his real world. That's something that I've just always thought about. It's like you're driving on a highway and there's a billboard on the highway and we all drive by and we can all see that one billboard. But what these platforms have done is that they put us on our own individual highways. They can control where we go. They control how many billboards are there. They control what billboards we see. And by the way, when you get home, those billboards follow you and you're in the bathroom and your billboards are there. And you're taking a shower and the billboards are there still. We have invited them into our most intimate, sacred places. Like you don't let anybody else in. And yet we are exposing our minds to whatever will work on us in these settings. And it's all for somebody else's financial gain. As he gets 
suck deeper and deeper into it, it becomes more and more surround. It goes from one plane to two planes to three planes. It loses this like visual infinity of being surrounded through just bombardment. That's the world that we live in now. Some of the people in the tech space talk about various dystopian futures. There's the Orwellian 1984 dystopian future, but then there's also this Aldous Huxleyan Brave New World dystopian future. Many people were afraid that, you know, they would burn all the books, but in a Brave New World reality, you don't need to burn the books because nobody reads the books anymore. We are so overwhelmed. We are so inundated. There's just an onslaught of endless trivial information. We can't even sift out what's true or not anymore that is being represented through COVID misinformation with such extreme clarity right now, right? It's so difficult for the public to parse out how do we make sense of the world? How do we understand anything? How do we trust anything? That is unfortunately what we've been sliding into. One shot you have, which yeah. is sort of like a traditional, like in Citizen Kane, the newsreels go by and the, the newspapers go by to show time. Mm. Here, you have a shot of him, the, the phone's covering part of his face and the scrolling is happening on either side. That montage was like so fun to make and working with our cinematographer on that. And from our past films, from Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, I am a huge fan of time manipulation and to be able to use time lapse as a medium. And the application of a time lapse in this case felt really appropriate just to be able to show that breezy passage of time happening to play with the colors and to go very surreal during that montage scene was just something from a cinema perspective, really fun. Not only in structure and design is this film so much different from the other two features that you've made, but the challenges of essentially being a fiction director suddenly along with being a more traditional documentary director, you're having to direct actors. You're having to worry about yeah. production design. You're dealing with all these effects. From an artistic point of view, what were some of the big challenges? This project, it definitely was pushing me out of the comfort zone quite a bit in terms of a different type of filmmaking in directing actors and trying to communicate these scenes. But it was also at a stage in the project where I knew what these scenes needed to accomplish for the greater objective of what we were trying to tell. So in many ways, a lot of my role with the actors was explaining, this is what the technology is doing to you right now. I wanted also to put them in the headspace of what we needed out of them in those scenes. I really love computer technology and I really love graphics and cameras. And so all of the VFX stuff was extremely fun and fulfilling. We were referencing Vinnie Kartheiser earlier playing all three AIs. And to be able to do those shots where he is talking to himself with moving cameras, I'd never done anything close to that before, but it was super fun to be able to do the problem solving and figure out on set, okay, this is how we're gonna get it to happen. We had actors there reading the other lines so that Vinny could play off somebody else. We would rehearse the script and we would get the timing down and we knew, okay, this is the timing for this scene. And we need to get Vinny to get this entire scene across in let's just say 15 seconds. And so the camera would start moving. We would have him play the first AI and other people would play the second and third and get the timing down. And then we'd have him switch the wardrobe, switch his hair, shift into that second character and repeat that camera motion with our motion capture device. And, and then have the other actors play the other two roles and do that yet a third time. So he's there interacting with himself effectively. And how do we create that and simulate that in a way that we could make it seamless and make it edit together. And like, for me, that was just geeking out and really enjoying the process. I did want to ask you about the journey of the film itself. I saw it at Sundance at its premiere in January, 2020. And mm -hmm. 
that was very different world. Yes. That was a few months before uh, the coronavirus pandemic. The film that's now on Netflix incorporates some elements that happened after the premiere. As is often the case for independent filmmakers premiering at film festivals. It's not always the final cut. You're on a timeline, you're rushing. Oh, we got into Sundance. We now need to finish it for the Sundance timeline. We went into Sundance with the idea of making some changes and things that we didn't have time for, or things that we got to feel out with the audience. That transition's too long. And oh, why did we use that line and not this other line? It was in that process as we were opening the film again to make some of those amendments that COVID really started picking up. We were back and forth on this every single day. Is it really going to be bad? Do we change this? How do we change it? When it was clear that this was going to become a full global pandemic and when it was clear that misinformation on these social platforms was already impacting people's lives. When both of those things were really concrete, then we realized we absolutely needed to, to add a scene. We tied into it that this is misinformation in real time around a global issue affecting people's lives. We were fortunately able to license some footage and make that scene happen. And we, we were able to squeeze that in before we finally released the film. This is a Netflix original. And of course, Netflix is known for their early and pretty dedicated advocacy of algorithmic recommendation. How did you think about mm -hmm. that? We thought about it quite a bit. There are a bunch of different aspects to this. The first one is that they have very different business models. The advertising incentive has a very different intention than a subscription business model. Another huge distinction is the, the balance between user-generated content. You don't see misinformation going viral on Netflix like you see misinformation going viral on YouTube. It's the advertising business model and it's the user-generated content where everything and anything can stick. You can throw anything into YouTube and if it happens to work on a bunch of human brains, it'll go viral and it'll continue to propagate. Netflix is curating content. There are teams that are making content and there's fact-checking that we were required to go through as part of the whole process. And I guess just one last thing to add, there are also extremely different types of information that are going through those platforms. Netflix still has documentaries, but very broadly and very explicitly, it's an entertainment platform. It is not a platform that is shaping news on a day-to-day -day basis in the way like political leaders decide what's going to happen. Twitter had access to the president of the United States in a way like no other technology company has been able to affect the thinking of any other individual human. So we're talking about very different scales and what was at stake and what is at stake in these different platforms. I know they do A-B testing on the artwork that you see for each film. Netflix has made lots of different versions of artwork for the social dilemma and for all of their projects. The level of filtering that happens on Netflix is just not at the same level of what's going on through YouTube or, or things like that. For, for me, the, the commentary is not anti-algorithm. Algorithms can be great. I want algorithms in my life. I want my doctor to have an AI that knows everything about my health and tells me what's going to happen to my body when I want that technology to exist. I don't want it owned by the insurance company that's limiting my access to health and resources and, and determining how much I'm going to have to pay for things. I think that's one of the big differences that we're seeing in, in how AI technology has been practiced. The social media giants have gotten this way because of the advertising business model incentive. The goal is to filter us. The goal is to segregate and to discriminate to better understand what's going to work on each individual person uniquely so that they can show us more ads. And whatever's going to get us to spend more time and however relevant they can make those ads, 
That is what their business model is. So there's a very perverse incentive for big social. And I'm including Google in this. It's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Snapchat, Instagram, it's YouTube. I don't feel that's the same thing for Netflix. Netflix might suck up some of our time and they might show us content and we'll binge a show. And I, I enjoy binging shows. And I also need to get sleep. That technology is designed with my interests generally at heart. It is still trying to figure out which shows am I going to find entertaining and to curate and to produce that content and give meaningful shows. Once again, it's the subscription model. It is something that I am paying for. And this applies to Netflix, HBO, Disney, Hulu, any of the streamers and the subscription business model from the streamers and content that is produced through those platforms. You don't see the consequences that we see on TikTok and YouTube. At the end of the film in the credits, you have the joke, follow us on social media, just kidding. But you're not kidding because you're not going to use social media to promote this film. So talk to us about the challenges of your impact campaign, getting the word out about yeah. the film and making a difference yeah. uh, without those tools, which I assume you relied on fairly heavily for your previous films. Yeah, I, uh, we did. Certainly in the past, we were using social media in a pretty meaningful way. And we've massively scaled back and shifted the entire way we think about that. And like I said earlier, I personally have completely stopped using all social media. A number of our partners aim to still use it as an educational platform and just to post resources and events and things like that. For us, I'd rather point people to a newsletter and to engage with us more deeply rather than encouraging people use social. We've hosted countless conversations. We've done countless Q&As with this film. So one of the big things is that for anybody listening in the audience, if somebody wanted to host a screening of the film, they can go to our website, they could sign up. We have resources and materials, discussion guides. And sometimes we can have our subjects or team go and engage in the conversation to go greater in depth. I'd much rather do that. I'd rather spend an hour on a call with a whole bunch of people to explain the nuance, explain the thinking, and to let people really investigate. So what am I getting out of this? And to pose those hard questions. That for me is, is a far more meaningful point of engagement and connection than getting millions of views of a particular thing. There is a notion of fighting fire with fire as well. And the people that need to get this message are on these platforms, but it, it's just such a sticky scenario. It's like, how does one be a climate activist? without burning fossil fuels. There are great examples of people like Greta who won't get on a plane, but that's one in a million. And it's really challenging to, to do that completely. I think when we're talking about systems level problems like climate and like our tech, we need to figure out how to change the whole system to get towards the solutions that we want. And that requires awareness as a starting point. It requires these conversations. We're in a different place on the climate conversation as we were a decade ago. We don't really need more films saying that climate change is real. What we need are stories that show us how we solve this, how we get out of it. The social dilemma was one of the first around saying, hey, look, there is a problem coming out of this technology. And what we also need is to figure out our ways through it and how do we navigate through it and how do we actually solve these problems? But once again, if people want to host a screening, they can go to the website, thesocialdilemma.com. I think it's probably time for me to pull back the mask and, and admit to you that I am in my day job, somebody who works in product for an app that is trying to get the attention of users. And I'm very well rehearsed in the art of growth hacking and have used some of the techniques to help my app. I'm a very particular part of your audience. What would you say to me? I love the question and thanks, Michael. And I appreciate uh, you sharing all of that. And I, I obviously don't know a lot of the specifics and, and what you're doing and, and all of that. I think as we were saying earlier, we recognize how powerful this technology can be. And here's the thing, if you're working at a small startup and you're trying to grow or you're trying to just get something established, 
Twitter never expected to get that big. They started off as an art project. Yet if something is successful and does get that big, then the genie's out of the bottle. And the way you designed it and the DNA of the starting code is now propagated throughout society. In that scenario, thinking through what are the best case and worst case outcomes that could happen? What if this does blow up and becomes a thing that's in everybody's pocket? What if this is the thing that people are spending an hour plus a day on? What does that do to humanity at scale? I think that same question could be posed to the fossil fuel industry. Early on, nobody was thinking, oh man, if everybody's using it, what's the consequence? It was just like, no, we can power an engine. We can fly a plane. Look at how awesome. We need to be thinking about the full long-term impacts of the technology that we design and we build. I think this is something where the ethics of technology, it is so critical for anybody who is coming anywhere close to thinking about and making technology. When you can design something on your laptop, in your basement, that could theoretically affect the way billions of people live their day-to-day -day experience. Like, we need a Hippocratic Oath equivalent for technology. We need standards. We need some sense of the responsibility that you carry by making something that can puppeteer in somebody's pocket the way they live their lives. That is a huge level of asymmetric power that the average person is not aware of. My three boys all watched it when they really enjoyed it. And they also came back, wow, my little brain's up against a thousand right. data scientists right. with supercomputers. Wow. Okay, right. I get it. I right. get the danger now. I think they were a little bit defensive though. And they did have that question, which was, what's on his phone? And it sounds to me like you have forsworn all social media. Is that correct? I haven't deleted my accounts. Okay. So in the full transparency of it, I kept my Facebook account. I, I did keep my Twitter account for some reason, but there are times when a friend from high school, I don't know how to reach them. So I, I want the ability to connect. And that's what these platforms actually provide. They provide connectivity, not connection. Connection is us seeing each other. The mirror neurons in our brain actually light up. We can empathize with each other. That's what real connection is. That's what we get in person. That's what we've been missing out on so much for the last year. But scrolling through somebody's update is not connection with them. My process was first weaning myself off of Facebook and other social media platforms by replacing it with news. So whenever I had the impulse to check Facebook, I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And I started reading news instead. I have a diverse collection of news apps that I keep in one folder on my phone. And if I ever feel that impulse or desire, and this is rarer and rarer still, but I'll go and check diverse news sources as my go-to. And then after a while, I really just genuinely stopped having interest in it. I never take a recommendation from YouTube. So if somebody sends me a video, I'll watch that video. I won't keep going deeper. If I am searching for something, I will do a search and I will look for the results. And if it's political, look for varying perspectives on it. I never got onto TikTok. Snapchat wasn't really effective on me. I completely stopped using Twitter and just stopped using Instagram. So all of those platforms are things that I weaned out. I turned off all of the notifications from apps that I don't want. And one of the nice new features, if you get a notification from an app and you're like, do I really want this? You can swipe to the side and you can say, no, turn off notifications from this app. So it's easier and easier. I keep notifications on from human beings just through text messages and signal. That's pretty much it. My notifications for emails have been off for years. I batch process email. I check very intentionally at specific times. For me, the yesterbox technique works well. So I will process yesterday's emails. And that way there's an explicit number. It's not an infinite, ever-growing number like today's emails can always be. I use do not disturb mode and I use airplane mode all the time. And so those are some of the techniques that I use. I 
eagerly and actively seek out creative time and time away from the devices. Scene it doesn't make it into the film because it happened this January was the January sixth insurrection, but it it really feels like your script depicting this group, the extreme center, that it, it's very prescient. When those events happened this past January, yeah. I'm sure you were thinking back on on your film and how your character is drawn into that. Right. It must have been a chilling experience right. for you. We spent countless time debating what would the climax be. If this thesis is correct, where would it lead a person? Where would it lead our society? Obviously, we referenced it as the extreme center, not wanting to point explicitly at the left or at the right, in that this is affecting all of us. It's affecting the entire system. And everybody on whatever political spectrum we're on is being pulled in a polarizing direction because of the way this technology is designed. There's a line in the film where we asked Tim Kendall what he was most worried about. And he said, in the short term, he's most worried about civil war. I remember the crickets in the room where the crew was like, are you serious? Is it really going to be that bad? The pure clarity and affirmation that Tim had, look, when you step back and look at the whole system, and if you understand the way this thing is working and how the incentives work, that's what the outcome will be. It took me years to really think through that, understand it and, and internalize it to be at that same conclusion as Tim. So when we were writing the screenplay and mapping out the climax of the film, that it would lead to this protest and to the real world violence, that was the natural conclusion for us. When January 6th happened, many of our subjects were saying things along the lines of like, we told you this would happen. Like, this is what was going to come out of this technology. And to remind ourselves, it doesn't end on January 6th. That was just one day in this country. We're seeing turmoil in other countries. We're seeing misinformation tear apart other countries. This is the background state of our, of our world now, in that this is how our information ecosystem has been so disrupted by these platforms. I, I do think that January 6th was the turning point moment that I felt Congress change. I think that our political institutions now recognized, oh, wait, there actually are real world implications to the technology that exists on social media. And it's not some distant ephemeral thing out there. It actually has impacts on, on how our democracy functions. I've spoken to probably 80 or almost 90 politicians at this point now, since the release of this film, both sides of the political aisle, Congress people, senators, attorneys, general politicians from other countries who are all saying, wait a second, we need to do something about this technology. We need to fix this. We need to course correct. And what can we do and how should we do it? And how fast can we do it? That wasn't the conversation two years ago. That wasn't the conversation a year ago. That's how fast this issue has been shifting. And we need to continue that momentum. We need to keep this conversation up. Toward the end of the film, your interview subjects talk a lot about government regulation and various measures. Do you think that some form of government regulation is necessary and do you have sort of a specific thing that you'd like the government to come in and do? Is government regulation necessary? 100% absolutely yes from the United States, from the EU, and from elsewhere. We need regulation. The regulation that I believe is most necessary is straight up either outlawing or banning or taxing the fundamental business model itself to ban surveillance advertising and or banning surveillance capitalism, the, the larger umbrella frame beyond that. I'm not super optimistic that we'll get there necessarily. That is something that the politicians, I think, will have a, a harder time on any reasonable timeline pushing through. 
barring that, I think we can force alternative business models and give consumers a choice to not opt in to the surveillance advertising model to constantly be surveilled and give me a choice that I can pay for a version that gives me something else. I think we can do Section 230 reform. People frame this as First Amendment issues, but they're not actually First Amendment issues. Freedom of speech and freedom of reach are completely different. The ability to say something and not be arrested or sent to jail for the rest of your life is very different than your ability to say something that gets amplified and sent to millions of people. If you wanted to broadcast a radio frequency, for example, you have to apply for a license and get a license to then say, I am getting the license of this amount of power to broadcast to this many people. That's not an affront to the First Amendment. That's the FCC saying for radio, for television, you need to get a license if you're going to have the power and the responsibility of reaching as a broadcaster, many, many, many people. Why don't we apply some rules like that to the internet? So those are just a, a handful of, of quick things, but is regulation needed? 100% absolutely, it is our top priority. You mentioned Apple, and I did notice that Wozniak appears in person in the audience, and then Steve yeah. Jobs appears kind of in memoriam. And I almost felt like you were saying that he had a more humanistic view of this, that maybe he was another direction that we were going, could have gone, should go. I love that you spotted Wozniak there. He is there scrolling on his phone in the audience at the same time, which I think is uh, just another layer of hilarious. Obviously, there's so much to who Steve Jobs was as a person. I never met him. But in those days, I do feel like the mindset and the spirit and the intention was to design technology that could enhance and expand upon the human capabilities. The analogy that we have in the film that the computer is a bicycle for the mind. A bicycle is just sitting there waiting to be used. A bicycle is not trying to get you to take it someplace. It's not an auto driving car that's gonna navigate you to the stores that Google Maps wants to send you to. The bicycle is sitting there and when you wanna use it, you can go farther, faster. That's what so much of this technology was at its start. The idea of being able to express yourself through Photoshop or Illustrator, the idea of being able to use word processing, to even have customized thoughts, like those were all ideas to be able to express who we are as humanity. The technology was designed with us as the customer and us as the client and us spending the money. And we were the ones that the technology was being optimized for. With this business model, we are not that customer. The, the technology is being optimized for the advertisers to better be able to make the advertisers more money to better be able to make more money for the company. And we are the unwitting victim in all of that. The public is not the customer here. For me, that's such a clear fork in the road of where the technology shifted. Let's say hypothetically, there was a platform that was trying to get you to have more meaningful relationships with your closest friends and family. I would spend money for that. I, I want technology that's going to provide for me a deeper, more meaningful relationship with my closest friends and family. That's not what Facebook's doing. That's not what Twitter's doing. That's not what these platforms were designed around. Look, we pay for Zoom. Zoom is a technology that enables people to have conversations across space. It's an amazing technology that we, we are paying for. There are more technologies that are coming out that are intending to do that as well, that are really trying to foster deeper communication. So for me, the notion of is this really designed to serve us or not? The easiest way to pose that question is, are we paying for it or not? Is Jeff Orlowski optimistic or pessimistic <laughs> about our chances to solve this problem and 
figure out a way to move forward. I'll, I'll take it just a, a step wider for a second in that I feel like at a civilization level, I am optimistic because of my pessimism. I believe that both with climate and with tech, that things are going to get worse before they get better. We have felt the climate impacts of this year, droughts, floods, all of it. And that's going to continue to get worse. We know that. The scientists know that. And not everybody in the public has fully woken up to just how bad it's going to be, but it's going to massively affect how we live on this planet. But just like with climate and with tech, I do believe that there's going to become that point in time where we'll be able to turn the ship around and we'll be able to make it better and we'll be able to have a sustainable and just world for human society. But we need to change those things now. With climate, we're taking action now to prevent the worst happening 30 years from now or 50 years from now because there's so much that's just built into the system. That same thing applies to our technology. We need to not only fix the way our technology is designed and exists, we need to get past the inertia of the last decade of misinformation that has affected our minds and our brains. We need to heal the damage that has been done by these platforms. And then hopefully we'll be able to be all the more equipped and able to make better decisions as a government, as a society in the future. I personally have processed what I think will be some of the worst case scenarios coming out of the next couple of decades. For me, that's just the de facto baseline. Things are going to get bad. They're going to get worse. And out of that, every action that we do is one step away from it getting even worse than that. And every action that is one step in the right direction for that more sustainable and just future. I think that's where my optimism comes from, is that we are not totally doomed. And I think human civilization will survive and we'll get through all of this. And for me, that is a, a very optimistic future. What are you working on next? A lot of what our team has been focusing on has still been around the social dilemma. We have a whole impact team and an impact campaign happening with the film, reaching out to politicians from the left and from the right, engaging with schools and youth, keeping public pressure on the tech companies and very much just continuing the thesis of what we built out with the film. People can go to our website, thesocialdilemma.com. All of our resources are there and people can sign up for a screening and our team is, is all connected through the site. That's been our top priority. And then. Of course, there are a whole bunch of productions we've been scheming and thinking about, but nothing is public. Congratulations again on the film. It was incredibly ambitious, and I feel like you just exceeded the bar in every aspect. Oh, thank you. We do want to let you go, Jeff. I want to say thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Yep. Be safe. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Jeff? Oh, you guys covered everything. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Glad we can have such an in-depth conversation. Really appreciated it. I, and I love the questions and the thinking. And I, I love these talks. Yep. Yeah. And, and I feel like yep. we should make an appointment to talk to you every six months, if that's okay. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. If, if for, uh, just, for, it's just for our own well-being, if for no other yeah. reason. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Can you give us a hidden gem, a documentary film that you feel maybe doesn't get the attention that it warrants? There's a film called Baraka. I saw it when I was about to go to college. And that movie just completely changed my thinking of what cinema could do. It, it was a big screen experience. It just completely hit me to my core. There's no dialogue. It's just a film showing different visuals from all around the planet in different ways, different cultures, both the natural and human landscapes and how humanity is affecting and interacting with nature. A stunning masterpiece and, and blew me away.